0: Hey, everyone, and welcome to the Knowledge Exchange podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Arbilla, lead mentor at the Knowledge Exchange, where we run courses, mentorship, and in-services for clinicians in private practice who want some guidance on applying a BPS approach to their practice, amongst all the very real challenges, the uncertainties, and the complexities when working with humans who have pain. So check us out at tkex.org. And today, I am very excited to be joined by two industry leaders and Instagram meme kings, Jared Powell aka the shoulder physio, and Alexis Leveille, hopefully I pronounced that correctly, the no bullshit physio. Amazing. I I remembered from the first time. So my family in Montreal will be super proud of me right now. Um, If you missed our previous solo episodes with these two gentlemen, I highly recommend searching it up on your podcast app. But today we're going to dive deep into some of the barriers that clinicians have when applying a BPS or evidence-based approach and what we can do with misinformation and perhaps even pre-bunk or inoculate some of our colleagues from the bullshit that is around to be blunt so gentlemen i'll start with you jared if you could give us a quick intro who you are and what's your why
1: hi daniel hi alexis uh thank you for inviting me on the show privileged to be here speaking to you two gentlemen so so me i'm a i'm a physio i've uh been a physio for a long time now. I have an interest in the shoulder. I research the shoulder. I talk about the shoulder. I love the shoulder. I teach about the shoulder. It's, it's my thing. If you if you didn't already realize that with my Instagram handle that you mentioned a moment ago. Um, what's my why? What's my why in life? What's my life, why in work? I don't know. My why in life is just to do my best and, and make my kids happy. My why in work is to... leave the profession better than I entered it. Hopefully when that's all said and done, hopefully in another 60 years time.
0: Yeah, mate, you're doing a a great job. And also as a previous participant in your courses, actually twice participant, highly recommend all the work that you do and you're doing a great job. Thank you. Alexis, who are
2: you and what's your why? Hey, uh, I'm Alexis. Like you said, I'm a physio in Montreal. Uh, my why, um, good question. I think I've always liked to kind of argue. That's like one of my things. It's one of the reasons why I went to, to law school and why it's kind of a nightmare to have a, an argument with me in the family home. But, uh, one thing I realized in law school is that I, in my opinion, not a lot of people were there to help people. Um, they were in there for the money or their prestige and I didn't like that. So that's why I went back to physio and I guess I get my feel of, you know, arguing but i don't want to call it arguing it's more about figuring out what the truth is and i I think a lot of it especially in science comes from healthy disagreement because we're all biased so if everyone argues hopefully you know the idea that survives is as close to the truth as we can get and you know i can't it's harder for me to argue against myself than it is to argue against other people so i think it's a useful way you know mid-busting to kind of figure out where the truth lies um so yeah i think yeah i want to improve the field and i want to do something i'm good at which is kind of arguing and figuring out as close to the truth as we can while helping people, hopefully. Like the uh, Socratic
0: kind of questioner, mean king with providing that comedic relief as well as looking to be less wrong. I think you're you're doing a great service in a very interesting medium as well. So respect your talent there.
2: Thanks, Chief. With
0: our first question, if we're looking at an evidence-based approach and a lot of us are coming across it nowadays more so than ever, if we can say that through social media and following industry leaders. But there are differences. There's one difference is uh, understanding the, the the knowledge in a theoretical declarative way. And another is to apply and implement and, and practice it in specific private practice clinical contexts. So what for you both, what, what do you think are some of the the, the reasons, the barriers that clinicians find it a challenge to apply an evidence-based approach? And, Jared, I'll ask you first.
1: Yeah, or well, manifold. I assume. I think everybody's probably got their own battles with it, depending on where they are and what their experience is and the environment that they're in. I can speak for myself. I mean, it's... It's hard to be evidence based, and I guess you could say, what does it mean to be evidence based? Let's say evidence informed. Um, so what what's the incentives to be evidence based, from a clinician perspective? Like, are the patients demanding you to be evidence based? Probably not. Is your boss demanding you to be evidence based? Probably not. So so what are the incentives here? It's certainly not financial. You're not going to be rich by being an evidence based so it's got to come from within. It's got to be intrinsic, and it's hard to do that. It's hard to overcome that inertia and that resistance to change, to change, especially if you weren't trained in a way that that's consistent with being evidence based or, or evidence informed. So for me, the reason why I changed a long time ago now was I couldn't reconcile why my overly biomechanical like 99% biomechanical kinesiopathological um, kind of strict uh, movement impairment screening uh, reductionist approach didn't work or it worked for some and it didn't work for others. And I had no explanation as to why it didn't work. It worked some of the time for some people and it worked within a couple of sessions and then for others, it wouldn't work and i would blame myself i would blame the exercise i would blame the treatment i would blame my manual therapy or I would blame the patient for not for not doing their exercises so then i just started to to research that a little bit that was a research question that i had and then as an amateur uh clinician scientist tried to go and find answers for that and it led me down this this crazy intellectual pathway over the over the last decade so so that's that's sort of my story and then and then you've got to look at the system. So this system that we see, I don't know what it's like in Canada with Alexis, but certainly in Australia, really common to have 20, 30 minute consultation times. How the hell can you conduct a thorough physical examination? How can you let a patient talk or a client talk, whatever you want to call it? I still call them patients. How can you let them talk uninhibited or unhindered in that time frame? How can you conduct these guided behavioral experiments how can you have a really deep conversation about diagnosis prognosis their cognitions their thoughts their feelings their beliefs their worries their concerns how can how can you discuss a way forward how can you then have a conversation at the end about what they may or may not have learned or what are they struggling to deal with and, and what you may or could have communicated better. You just can't do it in that time frame, And I certainly know this from experience. And if anyone can get them on the show and and tell them to tell the world how to do it, it's, it's simply impossible. So, so that system is, is really not geared towards evidence-based practice. Some clinicians, and this is, I'm not going to have a go at clinicians here, but this is a common reason that i hear is that they don't have enough time in a week to read evidence and therefore implement it and that's fair enough if you're seeing 60 patients a week that's draining that's exhausting if you have a family on top of that that dwindles your time if you if you like to do leisure activities on top of that then your time is almost gone but we also do live in an age where information has never been more available And and that's the same for musculoskeletal health related information. We have social media, we have evidence-based education providers, we have pirate scientific article platforms, we have blogs, you can email authors for papers and they'll mostly send you the papers. We have infographics, we have podcasts like yours. I think if you commit 30 minutes a day to reading something or critically thinking about something, that substantially builds up over time. It's like investing, you get that compounding effect. If you invest 10 bucks a week that adds up over time over 50 years if you think about something critically for half an hour a day you'll get better at it so for me these these barriers and these reasons are many fold there's not one it depends on the person um and there's systemic factors and there's individual factors which we need to take into account
0: yeah the entire system influencing it at once it's not just one one thing to blame necessarily Alexis, I'm curious with your experience and also your, your context, what do you think are some of the, the barriers that clinicians face?
2: Um, well, I think I'd go further than what even Jared said. I think that the system incentivizes you not to be evidence-based. Like if you do your job well, and you know it's something that's hard to digest for a lot of physios, but if you look at the work that Chris Littlewood did and Mark, uh, Mike Ratliff is doing, you see that like a very minimalistic intervention with centering on education is almost as useful as like, you know, like 50 visits. There are cases where we need to see your patients a lot and there's evidence for that. Like ACLs, you at least need to see the patient like 10 times. Otherwise, the outcomes are like dog shit. <laughs> um, there's like stuff like that where it's really useful to see the patients a lot. But, you know, if you're a clinic owner or if you're someone that works, you're paid by the patient. Which I mean, I am, but I choose my hours. There's a difference, but like people are like pressured to see a lot of patients; otherwise, they're they're not. You know, it's not a liv- livable wage. Um, well, it's like why would you read the evidence? You're just going to make less money. So yeah, uh, like Jared said, I think there needs to be a change in the level of the system. And I think what's good with the evidence is that I think, and I don't know the solution because there's too many physios for a system like that. But I think that eventually, having a system that we're where we aim more at like prevention and education at uh, a population level will be better. Cause again, we see that education is like the majority of the effects is just the contextual effects and just being there and explaining to patients how to load manage. Um, so I think if we could educate the patients or need like a need for seeing the patients like 20 times would go away to some extent and we could be there just in case. But yeah, I think there's too many physios for that, for a system like that right now. Um, another is just, I think there's too much information. Like there's a lot of papers and I think most of it is actually bad, bad papers so and i've said this before and i i mean jared he's trying to do his PhD. so <laughs> i don't know if he's going to agree but i think there should be like a moratorium on shitty papers like it should you should have to do um uh what do you call it like uh pre-trial registration so that people can like we can like rule out the papers that are adding nothing or actually in my opinion are making the field worse like there's a lot of bad papers retrospective papers on stuff where there's already retrospective papers that are adding nothing. And we talk about the shoulder, we can talk about like shoulder dyskinesia. Like we don't need more retrospective papers on the scapula. We need better, longer retrospective studies and interventional studies. And maybe we can keep exceptions for like, if, I don't know, if you discover like a new element, okay, you don't need to pre-trial register. But for most cases, I think we need to save like have fewer papers of higher quality so that people can actually consume it. And, um, uh, even though there's options, there's people who distill it for you. Like, like Jared said, I mean, like Jared's a great example. Like I bought his course and I think I read a lot of science, but it's just, it's saving me
1: time. So I bought his course.
0: Yeah. So I see some, some overlaps there with time. And, um, that Can call need... this
1: episode I bought his course. That'd be good.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Ooh, yeah. Plug, plug away. Um, But the overlapping barriers, there seems to be time is one of them. And Jared, in your case, look, I I can imagine some clinicians just um, having, say, some positive outcomes and getting selection bias and not having even the time to reflect on whether the methods that they're using or the reasons they're using it for are actually evidence based. So I can see it can be very easy to get into that loop because there is that pressure to see more people. In less time more often there are perhaps some societal expectations of what treatment should look like and even the evidence itself has some barriers so i can see it's like a overlapping dynamic system and also keen on on what your opinions are and what alexis said Jared.
1: i agree i mean a moratorium on bad research sounds like a really good thing to do i'm not not going to argue for that or against that um might be hard to do we know that predatory publishing publishing makes up almost 15% of scientific information these days. And I think they're just, it's a profitable business. It's a billion dollar industry. So when financial incentives rule the roost, I think that's, that's always going to happen. I think, but, but I tend to agree with him. I think, I mean, do we change that? And I think that's a really good point or do we encourage people to be competent outsiders or do we train people in in critical examination skills, or how to think critically about a certain article? And you don't have to be a statistician to to actually look at an article and go, "Is this bullshit?" Or is this worth reading? You know, that Steve Camp is spoken about this at length over decades now about how to actually read a scientific article and what you need to look for. And it's not hard. You you do, you do not need to be a career academic to critically appraise a scientific research paper. I don't even think you need to be in healthcare. You just need to look at some basic things and we can get into that a little bit later. So, so yeah, we could ban shitty research. That's going to be really hard to do. I think shitty research has been done for thousands of years, or maybe we should try and look at actually helping people be more science literate or better at critical thinking.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Alexis. I think we should have, um, you know, we have like home economics. I think there should be the basic where we teach people like the basics, like the pyramid of evidence, even though it has like, it's a bit debaters, but just, you know, like when, when someone says on the media, a new study, it's like, what should you look for in that study to make sure that we're not just spreading misinformation? Because that that happens so often, and you know, just people just look at the guidelines. So yeah, systemic approaches, I think, are better because it's harder to have an impact on someone, especially when they they're already in the misinformation machine. But at a systemic level, we can have a much greater impact. And again, I think the same is true for physio. Yeah, I think this covers in how can we
0: uh, inoculate from the misinformation. And I think another point is um, if our educational system doesn't include science, literacy or, or philosophy or reflective thinking skills in during our four or five years of university, then of course it's going to be difficult to then start again when we're already time pressured to see patients back to back. So I think it also starts from that education level. And, and even this conversation, if there's students listening, I think preparing them that this is an essential skill to have and to keep developing.
2: Yeah. But again, I think having those systemic interventions and like the moral term could be a good idea. Cause I mean, the reason I do it personally, I know is not because it's like, I need to do this because this is my profession. It's just, uh, you know, I'm obsessed with that stuff. And I know not everyone is like, uh, I don't have kids. I don't, you know, it's like, I have, I have a specific incentive, but not everyone has that. There's some people for who physio is just a job and I completely respect that. So, you know, removing barriers for these people could be a good, like it could be helpful the same way, you know, for obesity, Just systemic interventions are better, like removing food desert. Well, we should remove misinformation marshes or whatever you would call it.
0: And if we were looking at the um, one other point that is often mentioned, and I was just talking to Jared before this podcast um, aired on Connor Gleadhill's recent paper was a mixed methods on some of the perceptions that clinicians have on the barriers. And one of the ones that was mentioned was patient expectations. And we can even dive into socio-cultural expectations of what treatment should look like and what quote unquote physio is even though it's not an intervention it's just seen that way and and perhaps marketed that way um touching on that point gentlemen i'm keen and jump in whenever What, what are your thoughts there on on the the barrier that patients have certain expectations of what the treatment will be how do you how would you manage it what would you say
1: uh for me it's I mean, I don't want to assume that that people have an expectation, so you just ask them. <laughs> it's like, I think yeah. we always oh, people give manual therapy because patients want it. Well, but not really. Once you tease that out and you say, "Okay, you want manual therapy? What do you think it's going to do for you?" And you actually start to engage that person in dialogue and have a conversation and where this belief's coming from, it falls apart like a house of cards really quick. And I'm not gonna deny if that person is steadfast in their belief that it's going to help them and maybe I can sneak some little positive messages in there about anti-fragile or you can't exercise and it's not bone on bone or something like that, then I'll just fucking do it because that person might feel a bit better and it's a small win. And possibly I sowed the seed that might come up a little bit later and they might doubt uh, getting that, not doubt, but they might question what they need to do in the future. So patient expectations are not just like this, homogenous thing that's out there in the ether that everyone wants the same thing. We just got to ask them. And there's some interesting qualitative research, which has come out recently. We're asking patients what they expect from physio and it's rarely manual therapy. It's mostly exercise and education. So I think this like assumption that it's all manual therapy um is mistaken and of course qualitative research is not thousands of people in a sample size it's that's not the nature of qualitative research it's a small study but we can't just assume that people think physio is a hands-on thing and therefore we're going to lose patience if we don't give that uh to to people that's my take
2: yeah um for me i work in a, a multi-clinic so almost everyone is just hands-on like acupuncturists or osteos and for me so like i like to say that i specialize in exercise you know it's like i mean i do but the, the reason i say that is just because i when i tell the patients like oh like i ask them their expectation and if it's manual therapy i'm like okay we can sneak some after but if that's okay with you my approach focuses on like long-term solutions, so something you can do on your own and usually if manual therapy helps you these exercises have a you know, they have a big overlap in terms of mechanism. So it's something that you can do at home if you do feel better. And especially if it's something chronic, I'm like, you know, do you have, have you ever tried exercise or other like active strategies so that again, they have like a feel good strategy for at home. So I, I kind of niche myself in there and I'm like, but if you want manual therapy, I know like a really good guy, like right just next door, I'll just give him this card. And I, I again, I do manual therapy. The patient has a strong expectation at the end, or, you know, there's cases where like manual therapy is shown benefits uh, it's just never the focus of my, of my treatment. Cause again, I focus on like long-term, not necessarily long-term, but like solutions they could do for themselves at home.
0: Absolutely. And there's definitely a time and place for manual therapy and not to, um, it's so easy to create these divisive camps that just lack yeah. nuance and on social media, the, the black or white, it's either evil or good. And, and shout out again, Jared, I'm just plugging the shit out of everything you do, but the podcast with Adam Meekins and Chad Cook was very well it done good. and Adding some of the nuances to this, I think that the theme, though that we're talking about, is ask the patient for their expectation yeah. in the first place rather than Rocket assume. Science, yeah, which yeah. is easier. Well, probably easier said than done for once. Um, in the the other point, and this goes on to my next question about um, the the time and the pressure, and and also if clinicians are in a private clinic and colleagues for instance are practicing in a different way and Alexis I'm keen to get your take and I think you've touched on it already where maybe colleagues are practicing in a different way or they're uh, coming across evidence and kind of um, not really implementing it as as much as they could or as much, as much as they want to and for very valid reasons as well so in for the clinicians who perhaps are in a team where colleagues are are not implementing and trying these different frameworks and approaches as evidence emerges and I'm saying this as kindly as I can as well what what would you suggest if your if colleagues are um, perhaps making it uh, difficult to apply and implement some of these practices
2: Um, I mean one of the reasons why I work where I work is because I you know I'm self-employed so I don't interact that much with the other therapists I see their files and they see my files but I try to keep, you know, be like, not like a one-man team, but just, you know, we don't interact that much when they, when they have questions on like science, they come and see me, but, um, I know my approach like doesn't jive with the way most of them think there's a couple that follow me and like, I'm really like grateful. They show me support, but I think most would just be frustrated talking with me and I'm okay. Like they have a different way of seeing it, but I'm. I'm trying to get like uh, in-services going again because it was crazy during COVID, but just doing a meeting and the way I plan on doing it is going through the history of, and that's how I like to do it when I I have to change someone's mind or if I'm trying to is I explain why I used, we used to think what the patient or the clinician is thinking and then I explain why we change our minds because it, it validates their beliefs and then you explain why it should be updated, like in my opinion, and it also shows the uncertainty. so. I think it's more conductive to long-term change, but yeah, for me, it's like, I think it's very difficult when you have practitioners that don't practice like you and you have to be in a team because you have to address that. And I, you know, I do like, I'm not, I, I'm not good with like, (laughs) uh, these types of conflicts. So I just tend to avoid it, honestly. So that's why I left the clinic where I was, you know, I work for myself. And
0: respecting the autonomy and the choices that you might have, I'm imagining in, in some cases for clinicians, they would have more autonomy in the way that they practice and yeah. others, they might not have as much, they have to kind of fit into a yep. particular clinic system. Jared, Keenan, you, your thoughts?
1: Yeah, I think leaving is a very valid uh, strategy here. If uh, honestly, I mean, you, it's yes. not your job to change everyone's opinion on things. So yeah. you don't have to take on that burden. I mean, especially if you're a new grad and you're like, oh, I'm following this dude and therefore I'm going to change all my colleagues opinions. That's super stressful. So, I mean, I, it took me probably six or seven years to actually really develop the confidence that I could challenge my boss uh, and, and my boss didn't respond well to the challenges. And then I started making memes about his approaches, which is uh, pretty fun. So like, I don't know, it's hard. You can show someone information, you can show them a systematic review. It's the same thing as like going out to GPs and trying to change their beliefs on on musculoskeletal. You can show them your best PowerPoint and you can do your presentation. But then honestly, they might think about you at the top of their of the top of their mind for the next couple of weeks, and they'll just go straight back to ultrasounds and injections and non-steroidal anti-inflammatory. So it's it's just really hard. I think. Maybe you can plant a bit of a seed like we can do with patients, but I don't expect clinicians to go out there and have to change the opinion of their colleagues. Sometimes they just have to go through their own process and they'll change when they're ready.
0: Yeah, that's, that's it. Uh, I think um, we can touch on maybe it's our own expectations of what other, uh, what we can do and how much we can really influence or change other people's behaviours. We talk about it all the time with, with clients and that we're only, seeing them for a certain amount of time we can't Mm. change their entire lifestyle and worldview in one session or with one treatment maybe we can also extend that to our colleagues and they have very valid reasons for keeping up their practice as it is um if we touched on the the other barrier that comes up and we we mentioned that that financial incentive and the, the pressure to see more people in less time so shorter and shorter consults it's almost seen as a you're more experienced and skilled if you can see more people in less time and complete all the necessary work and, and you know, um, tick the boxes. And, and that is very much so financially, there's financial incentives to do so. So what would you say in, in that case where there is that very real pressure and looking at people with families and time pressures and mortgages to pay off as well? How can we address that?
1: Well, oh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. That's yeah. outside my pay grade. I'm not an econ- uh, economist, but look, if I'm if I'm in a place that is strongly incentivizing a financial or business uh, revenue-based clinic that is totally at the expense or, or detriment of good clinical practice, then I suggest you go. I think there's enough clinical practice, uh, enough practices in the world or wherever you are, especially here in Australia, we're crying out for physios in, in many private practices. Just Go and shop around and try and find an environment that will suit you you don't have to suffer through some shitty practice just for the sake of it just because it's a stable job i think you've got to take that risk you got to find an environment that's going to suit you hey and you may leave three months later because maybe they were promising something but they didn't deliver but it is what it is and then eventually you might go through that for long enough and then you might start your own practice or you might do a telehealth business or you might be a sole sole trader like Alexis or and you, Daniel, and you, you'll just figure it out. So I just don't think we can fully just safeguard against that. And it's just going to happen and you've got to go through the chaos of life at some point.
2: Yeah. I mean, I agree with with uh, Jared. I just, I think we both come from a privileged place. I, I don't know. I think education is pretty cheap in Australia, isn't it? It's getting more
1: expensive, but it's free. You can go to university for free and then pay it back over a thousand years.
2: Yeah, so I think uh, I know a lot of people in the States because they ask me the same advice all the time. And it's just like, sometimes they don't have that privilege. Like they, their education is so expensive and they're like over $100,000 in debt. And so they, sometimes I have to go for the shitty clinic because they've, you know. So I don't want to make it seem like it's an easy choice. Like, oh, just go for yourself when like I've been raised like pretty comfortably my whole life. It's just, if you have the, if you have the chance don't be a pussy and do it <laughs> okay that's that's my advice but if you don't i mean i feel bad for you and i hope you find a solution
0: absolutely and um uh women are strong as well just clarifying that one and there's a there's a cat right in front of you alexis so when you said don't be a pussy i was just like oh i, I learned that recently two, two points no
2: pussy doesn't come from the word vagina it comes from pussy linemus I, I swear <laughs> to god it's, it's it's not even like misogynistic i learned that recently
0: amazing I'm yeah. so glad we cleared that up.
2: It's <laughs> not a joke. It's true. Like, look it up. I was baffled. I'm yeah. actually
0: going to look it up after this. That's, that's yeah. amazing. Um, Put in the
1: show notes. And- yeah,
0: absolutely. Um, if, if we're looking at, a, this is probably the, the, the um, best segue of all time, but if you're looking at inoculation of misinformation, so we've talked about how to, um, in previous podcast episodes, how to handle and respond to some of the BS that's out there, and there's plenty of ways to do that. If you're looking long-term and we touched on some of the critical thinking skills and the ability to maybe even uh, read and filter some of the information that comes to us. How would we suggest inoculating pre-bunking some of the, the content that we see some of the evidence that we see.
1: So for me, like bullshit is everywhere. We're not going to escape it. It's going to be here for the rest of our, our species existence. and And that's fine. I think as a philosophy, that's fine. Every every Popper says every source, every suggestion is welcome, but every source and every, every suggestion is open to critical examination. And I, I totally abide by that. So how do we become a competent outsider, which is a term that Carl Bergstrom has introduced, I think. And he wrote a, wrote a book called Calling Bullshit. So it might be a nice book for people to read. So science literate. So you look at a clinical trial. Was it pre-registered, as Alexis said before? Strong place to start. Even better, is it a registered report, which means that they actually peer review the protocol that you send in and then the journal will publish it irrespective of the results. So mostly we just publish positive outcomes and they'll publish the negative outcomes. So a registered report will publish the findings, even if it doesn't, even if it's not a a novel finding, which journals love. So pre-registration of a clinical trial or a systematic review, super important. What's the research research question? Does the conclusions match the research question that they set out to uh, uh, to answer? Selection bias. Is this a representative sample? Know a bit about sample size. Know a bit about number needed to treat. That's a super important topic. You know, if we're looking at corticosteroid injections for shoulder pain, you need to inject about five people for one person to have a pod- positive response over a saline injection for for other interventions like a prophylactic rotator cuff repair to stop progression of rotator cuff tear size you need to operate on seven people for one person to have to stop their progression of rotator cuff tear so number needed to treat is pretty important how's the data been reported has it tried has it been creatively reported in a pie chart or a figure to make it look better than what it is does the data, does the x-axis and y-axis go down to zero does it start somewhere else to make it look better Um, What were the stats that we use? Is it just the p-value or the confidence intervals um, reported as well? Is there a minimal clinically important difference? What's the difference between within group change and between group change? What journal is it in? Is it in a Q1 or a Q2 journal? Or is it in this random predatory journal that some uh, Instagram gurus like to publish in? Watch out for publication bias. Are you in an echo chamber? Have you tried to disprove yourself? I could go on all day here. So like, But these are things that you can learn and it's not an in-depth scientific thing or concept. It's not quantum physics. You know, it's not, you don't have to be a mathematician to figure it out. So you can't, I don't know if you can inoculate yourself, but you can reduce the probability that you're going to get duped by some bullshit evidence by knowing a little bit about critical thinking and being science literate. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And was it my turn? Yeah. I think as Jared said, there's a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of misinformation everywhere. I have like some stats actually. So siraz Leto did a systematic review in 2021. and he, we see that like there's misinformation. If you look at like health misinformation, all that stuff, it's about 30 to 87%. And the, like the fields where it's, there's the most misinformation are the ones that are the most loaded. So opioids, you know, there's a lot of like victim blaming and whatever. It's very inflammatory. But if you look at stuff that's more neutral, like medical treatment, it's the lowest at 30%. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's never going to change. There's always going to be some. And one simple, very simple strategy we can implement is asking people to be more critical. So I like Gordon uh, Pennycook. He does a lot of studies on misinformation. I think he's out of MIT. He does a lot of studies on fighting misinformation on social media and just asking people to think critically, like asking them, is this information accurate, um, makes it three three times more likely that they're going to be able to align with the truth compared to if you don't. So that's one of the reasons why they put the banner on the covid uh you know when you talk about covid it's just people are like oh wait is this if, like is this accurate and it's going to make them think critically Um, uh, but then if you look at I, we still haven't figured it out like there's john mohammed in 2022 she did like a meta-analysis of all the the ways we can fight misinformation and overall it's a wash so it's not statistically significant uh overall whether we can Reduce misinformation with like misinformation prevention strategies. So, my bias is just that there are some strategies that work, there's some that don't. Because if you look at the individual studies, some are very effective. So, they give an example, um, and that's at like the individual level. They, I think it was about doctors trying to encourage parents to take vaccine if they're vaccine as hesitants. And what they could do is just give all the information. If they give all the information, it's not very effective, but if they show them graphic images and that's kind of fucked up, but if they show them graphic images of kids that haven't taken the vaccine, it's like extremely useful, like effective. at. So the parents like will take the vaccine. I think that's kind of fucked up because it's manipulation on some level and it's not very scientific, but I, I think my, the way I do it in between as I, I tell a story, you know, I try to weave in the scientific information in a non-boring story way that makes it feel personal and accurate and i i think that's more effective because you know people don't care about stats and whatever they care about how is this going to affect me and you know we're, we're you know we were we used to live in caves so we're not we weren't bred or we didn't evolve to read like a paper on PubMed but we did evolve to understand how tribesmen are going to be affected by the water stuff like that i don't know
0: yeah absolutely and reading some of david mccraney's work on how minds change can definitely lead, lead some scientific Evidence towards that, and one of those is um, looking at some examples and and lived experiences. And I'm keen yep. for both of you with your own clinical approaches or beliefs that you used to have. And Jared, you touched on this a little while ago. What are some approaches that you no longer find as helpful as you've come across new and emerging evidence and information? And this well, is I've not been a place through to them all, rep- I'm all the enough sins, to- but.
1: I'm I'm old enough to have tried everything just about. So, uh, you know, biomechanical, kinesiopathological model, early change to like strength, capacity, resilience model, Red Scott Dye's work. I wanted to be Scott Dye. Everyone was taught about the envelope of function and tissue homeostasis and allostasis and all this shit. Then I went to, you know, psychologically informed practice and everyone just gets, you know, a lecture for an hour. And then you know now i'm kind of at this stage where it's like it's like a fit for purpose model it's like what does this person need where is this person struggling does this person need an exercise program where i do need to positively change their soft tissue you can argue that most people probably need that in the current uh health condition of of the human species so so yeah most people will get an exercise program Does this, do we need to have a conversation with this person, person about their thoughts, feelings, and beliefs? Do they have these weird beliefs about the fragility of their shoulder or their lumbar spine that we need to challenge or investigate? You know, so most of my time now is like, there's this catchphrase that's used and I really like it. It's creating a positive experience with movement because most people have this weird relationship with movement because it often hurts to do things and that's why they come to see you. So it's kind of trying to reconceptualize that a little bit. And, you know, trying to give accurate information about diagnosis and prognosis and and all these kinds of things. So, I, so I've been through them all and I take the best bits out of all of them, I think. And now I have this weird kind of hybrid approach where nothing's off limits, but nothing is, is sort of one dimensional. And I'm not afraid to say to someone, hey, you might not need an exercise program here. You don't need to stretch for six minutes a day. You don't need to go to the gym six times a week here. To fix your quad deficit to make your patellofemoral fat pain go away, you might need to load manage or something, you know. Like, and there's also a million different ways to exercise. You don't have to do high intensity exercise or low intensity or motor control or stretching or closed kinetic or open kinetic or full kinetic, whatever, you know. There's so many different ways to do so many different things and it's fit for purpose. And I'll come back to that term. So, so that's my approach these days. And I, but, but I wouldn't take back the way that I approached a few years ago or the way that I practiced a few years ago, because it's kind of, it's a stepping stone and it's, you know, it's helped me to be where I am today. I think.
0: Absolutely. It's so it's easy to just look back and, and regret all the quote unquote mistakes, but there are stepping mm. stones and they, they say, they, they say something about where you've come from as well and how much. Well, it's changed. error
1: correction, you know, and this is what science is. I think it's a self-correcting mechanism or process. And I think that's, you've got to, you know if you take that to actual clinical practice you have to try something you have to conjecture a solution and then have that solution fail and then you alter it this is the process of science
2: um yeah for me i don't know i was way like jared went all like um very broad for me i went very specific so i used to think that um like hip strength and knee valgum was a big predictor of knee pain and come around like the systematic review by papas from 2015 shows that there's no clear link it's more about like knee strength but then there's two other big prospective studies that came out with like over 500 participants there's the Herbst one in 2015 and the other one was the ram from 2015 and they're both contradictory so one shows that having stronger hip abductors protects from pain the other shows that it uh, makes it more likely that you're gonna have pain so it's like Overall, it's a wash, so I just don't focus on it. I focus more on knee strength. And I do give some knee, some hip abduction strengthening anyways, because the papers that use it show that uh, there's a reduced risk of ACL injuries. But it's just, it's really convoluted. Honestly, the patient probably doesn't make the difference. But to me, it's like how I explain it to patients. It's like, I don't tell like, oh, you have hip pain because your hip is weak, uh, knee pain because your hip is weak. It's more about, hey, this might make your knee feel better. We don't really know why. Do it. (laughs) So, yeah, it's... Again, I'd say I'm more comfortable with uncertainty now. It was really, again, pato-anatomical before, and now it's more about, you know, it's multifactorial. We don't really know. It's kind of like, I don't know, like a Pandora's box. I don't really know. And then if patients ask, I can get into very granularly granularly detail, but usually I try to keep it very simple, uh, including the exercise program or whatever I give them if it's just load management. From very specific, highly pathoanatomical
0: anatomical towards more, general and being okay with saying there might be many reasons for this working for you. And here are the yeah. options of that. Yeah. Gentlemen, we could talk for hours, but respecting both of your times, it's been an amazing conversation. And for the listeners who are keen to follow and find out a bit more about your work, where can they find you? Jared first, and then Alexis.
1: Instagram shoulder underscore physio website, shoulderphysio.com podcast, the shoulder physio podcast. Love it.
2: Uh, Instagram, No Bullshit Physio, uh, YouTube, No Bullshit Physio for the longer, uh, hard hitting videos. Hard hitting. Gentlemen,
0: thank you both for your time and sharing your expertise. And I'm loving the deep dives and the honest chats. Very much appreciate it. Until the next time. Thank you. Thank you.